0: Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Mallon, a Queensland-based osteopath and clinical nutritionist whose lived experience led her to focus on women's health. Rebecca has undertaken extensive professional development and is passionate about empowering, educating and caring for women. Rebecca and I discuss endometriosis, a condition that can have a devastating impact on a woman's quality of life. With such a wide range of signs and symptoms, it can take time and involve multiple practitioners to put the pieces of the puzzle together on the journey to diagnosis. We may be the first practitioner to recognize the signs and symptoms or be part of a multidisciplinary team caring for a woman with endometriosis. Whatever our role, we can have a significant impact. As osteopaths, we have the time to listen, offer support, guidance, education, as well as manual therapy. Rebecca has written two comprehensive articles for the Osteo Life magazine, which I highly recommend you read. She goes into great detail about endometriosis, nutritional considerations, and self-management techniques. Thank you, Rebecca, for taking the time out from your busy work and mum schedule to join us today. Thank you. Can you start by giving us um, a brief description of your career journey so far? Sure. So um,
1: I graduated from RMIT in 2010. And after that, I moved straight to Queensland because I wanted some warmth and sun for my life. <laughs> um, and I, from there, I worked in private practice in a clinic, two different clinics in Brisbane um, for about a year or so. And then I went travelling um, overseas and worked overseas in South America. Then when I came back, I came back to Brisbane and was in Brisbane until um, this year, actually, until September this year. And then I've moved to the Sunshine Coast most recently. So in Brisbane I was working in for probably five to six years, just in like a general osteopathic practice, seeing anyone and everyone, and then I started to get interested in women's health. And did lots of different courses on pregnancy, pain in pregnancy, pelvic pain, um, and so on. And then it was with my own sort of journey and experience of endometriosis that I've really got interested in that as well, myself. Um, And then I set up my own clinic in Brisbane, um, in Wollongabba, where I pretty much primarily only see women's health. Um, And now that I'm living on the Sunshine Coast, I am... Next year I'll be reopening my clinic again for clients. but for now I'm working um, at Inner Wellness in Coulomb with a few lovely practitioners there. So that's what I'm doing primarily. Um, I've also volunteered for Quendo, which is Queensland Endometriosis Association, in um, a capacity of a meetup um, facilitator for those experiencing endometriosis and symptoms and wanting connection but also as a health and wellness advisor. And I've also worked for Women's Health Queensland as well, um, working with sexual and domestic abuse survivors.
0: Wow. Yeah. And you've done all that on top of family as well. And family. just yeah. And
1: having a social life and
0: whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to focus on endometriosis. Can you start by giving us a brief description of what endometriosis is, please?
1: Sure. So first and foremost, it is a chronic progressive and inflammatory condition um, where endometrial-like tissue is found outside of the uterus. So a really big common misconception is that it is actually the endometrium, but it's not. It's just very similar to the endometrium. And it can be found with Um, within the body absolutely anywhere however is most common within the pelvis and peritoneal cavity Um, but it can be found in the diaphragm in the lungs in the eye like it can be literally anywhere so it's estimated that one in nine women or people assigned female sex at birth have endo Um, however the statistics are most likely higher from what um, a lot of the research is showing at the moment so uh, essentially, these endometrial-like deposits that form around the body will then like, proliferate and respond in response to hormones and the hormones of the menstrual cycle. And they, that will cause more proliferation and more inflammation and scarring and adhesion of the les- uh, endometrial lesions. Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, it's essentially an inflammatory condition that causes pain and, and or subfertility, um, and there is essentially an immune component to it as well, but we'll probably get into that.
0: Yep. <laughs> and What's the current understanding of the cause?
1: So that's a really big question because there, at the moment there's a lot of different theories and um, thoughts behind what is actually causing and driving endometriosis. So whilst there's a lot of different ideas and theories out there, they're all kind of interconnected in a way. So like I said, it's an inflammatory condition for first and foremost and potentially an immune condition as well, which is affected by hormones. So a theory that's been around the longest um, is called retrograde menstruation, which is essentially meaning that instead of menstrual blood exiting the body, there's backflow through the fallopian tubes into the pelvis. And from there, the endometrial tissue can change um, and be transported around the body. And from there, it can create deposits on wherever it ends up and create lesions. Uh, So that's one theory. However, we know that there's approximately 90% of women um, experience retrograde menstruation. So the statistics don't quite line up. So there may be 90% of people having retrograde menstruation, but one in nine will be diagnosed with endometriosis. So there's a few things there. Is it because the immune system isn't coming in and clearing away the debris that would be um, happening in someone without endometriosis? Or is it that more people do actually have endometriosis, it's just that they're asymptomatic? And then you need to look at Mm. why is someone symptomatic versus why is someone asymptomatic? So that's something sort of um, to consider as well. Okay. Um, so that is sort of one theory combined it with another, um, there is also an interaction between the immune and the nerve system, like I said, and which creates neurogenic inflammation. Um, and then there's most often high iron, um, in the lesion sites and around the area of the lesions from damaged cells and hypoxia, which then activates macrophages an immune system. So again, it's an immune component and the inflammatory cascade has occurred. If that is making sense, I'm not yep, sure. Yep.
0: <laughs> is Has there found to be any genetic link?
1: Yes. So that's the newest um, research at the moment. So it is looking like there is a, genetic, a direct, direct genetic link. So if you have a mother, sister, etc., that has had endometriosis, you will be more likely to have endometriosis. However, the Research is also showing that there is an epigenetic component as well. And that is coming from potentially toxin exposure Um, in particular grandparents for like women being diagnosed now. uh, Grandparent, grandmothers exposed to various toxins and also transgenerational trauma as well is sort of the newest area, which is really fascinating. Um, it's a very new area of research for that, but it's essentially going along the lines of transgenerational transgener- trauma and or stress um, and the epigenetic changes that occur from there, which would predispose someone to having endometriosis. Um, and there's one okay. other sort of theory or component, if you don't mind, sorry. Yeah, no, no, um, go Is um, microbial issue. So essentially looking at... Um, the gut, gut health, as well as the vaginal microbiome. So you may have translocation of the vaginal microbiome via retrograde menstruation, or if there is dysbiosis within the gut and increased lipopolysaccharides, so particular type of bacteria, that can translocate from the gut or the colon via increased intestinal permeability. um, And then that can interact with um the uterus and so on due, due to close proximity and then the gut microbiota through like extra derived extra vesicle extra cellular vesicles, <laughs> 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 I'd say extra vesicles. um <laughs> so it's kind of all connected
0: yeah okay so has there been has, has anyone found links between endo and any other autoimmune conditions if they're looking at potential immunity um, so causes? So
1: that's sort of where the research is heading. Um, they know it's an immune dysfunction but can't quite claim or say it's an autoimmune disease just yet. Um, in terms of actual statistics and relation to diff- various autoimmune diseases, I'm not too sure, but treatment often when you're looking outside of just osteo treatment does respond well to how you would treat other autoimmune diseases as well. So it's there, um, but you can't quite say just yet that it is an autoimmune disease, but something triggers it. Okay.
0: One thing I found really fascinating when, when doing my research for this podcast is, is that some women can be asymptomatic um, and, and the severity of disease as well, or severity of changes, doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily correlate with people's pain and symptoms. So can you talk a little bit about what the current evidence is um, identifying the pain and symptom-generating mechanisms of endometriosis?
1: Sure. So this, again, is not a straightforward answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like you said, the pain does not correlate to the stage and endometriosis will be diagnosed either stage one to four, um, and either superficial or deep infiltrating endometriosis, um, which will be often during the laparoscopy or um, via specific MRI imaging, now that there's new imaging technology available. But the various factors which will influence pain severity will involve the immune system. So how, how involved is the immune system? What is that inflammation that's occurring? Um, the proliferation that occurs during the menstrual cycle and how that's impacted by people, um, by um, various hormones, sorry. Neurogenic inflammation, neuroangiogenesis, so the formation of new blood cells, uh, blood vessels, can't talk, blood vessels and um, nerves. And then looking at peripheral and central sensitization, depending on the person. So it's known that people who experience more symptomatic endometriosis and severe pain actually have a greater amount of nerve and nerve supply and blood vessels to the lesions. So that may also explain why someone could have stage four fairly asymptomatic endometriosis. That's only diagnosed um, by chance, perhaps they're going in for an appendectomy or something versus someone with stage one who has it in minimal locations, but they're experiencing debilitating symptoms, they could have a higher amount of inflammation, neurogenic inflammation and neuroangiogenesis, which is creating that strong um, positive feedback loop of inflammatory um, cascade in the immune system as well. So that's something to to consider. Um, There's also a, a big component of, endometriosis is a lot of people have concurrent ibs or gut symptoms um so there is the possibility as well uh, of cross-organ sensitization as well from all the common nerve pathways that um share the reproductive tract colon bladder etc etc
0: so so that cross-organ sensitization so would that explain why some women would get vomiting or, or diarrhea or constipation, as opposed to there being endometrial lesions directly on those organs, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard to say. Like, it's potential. Um, it could be the cross organ sensitization or like the diarrhea, constipation, painful defecation can be because the, the physical endometriosis is on the bowel.
0: Um, it's really like, yeah, it's, but, it's but it is, but it know. could be either. It could be causing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Definitely. And I guess if you've got all that, um, pelvic floor involvement as well, that's going to play a role too. Absolutely. So where do you see the role of osteopaths in caring for women, um, that are living with endometriosis? So it would depend.
1: So two things as our role physically as a osteopath, but also as a primary healthcare provider. Um, So you may be the first person that someone's spoken to if they have undiagnosed endo that can sort of put the pieces of the puzzle together. So they've gone through years of having IBS, bloating, food triggers, which, you know, they're like, oh, I can't eat gluten, dairy, whatever it may be. And so they've tried all these diets to reduce the IBS symptoms, but it hasn't worked. They've had heavy clotting periods since they were teenagers, but they've just been put on the pill to stop it, kind of ignore it and so on. Um, you may be that p- first person that's like, hang on, this isn't right. Or they're coming to you for, again, pelvic floor dysfunction or painful sex, painful defecation, painful urination. So all these sort of symptoms would you should put on your sort of thinking hat and think endometriosis. From there, you would want to be referring back to a GP, and advocating for them as well to get a referral to a good gynecologist that's trained in endometriosis because not at all are. So you can be that kind of primary healthcare facilitator, um, also making sure that they're seeing other health practitioners such as acupuncturists, nutritionists, psychologists, etc. cetera. Um, but in terms of the osteopath, our role, I feel, is one, to listen to the patient because quite often endometriosis patients feel very gaslighted. And I think that's um, really important. Just listening. And regardless of whether you consider yourself a structural osteo or cranial biodynamic or whatever it may be, you are aiming to try and calm the nervous system, work out whatever dysfunction they may be experiencing. So is there a fascial dysfunction? Is there congestion in the pelvis? Is there lack of lymphatic flow? Um, your aim is to literally just restore function. It's the primary principles of being an osteo. Yep.
0: What are some of the signs and symptoms we should be looking out for? And do they always correlate with a woman's cycle?
1: Um, So no, not always. Um, So primary symptoms you'd be looking for are pain or pelvic pain, pain with urination or bowel movements, pain with sex, um, bloating. So, endo belly is a commonly used term in the endo community because you can look eight or nine pre- months pregnant. Um, IBS, food intolerances, unexplained infertility, which isn't, I want to emphasize, it's not for everyone. Um, there's a common misconception that people think if you have endometriosis, you're infertile, and that's not true for everybody. Um, heavy or irregular bleeding, ovulation pain um intense period pain pelvic floor spasm and another really common um potential identifying sign and symptom is nickel allergy so if you react to cheap jewelry that's a really common um whether it's a causation correlation i don't know that's interesting um, yeah so that's something to think about as well so and you said sorry is it always cyclical is that yeah what you yeah Not always, um, but it can follow a cycle pattern. So pain can be, like I said, worse with ovulation and then worse with the bleed as well. And that is because those proliferation of the endometrial lesions can follow and react to the hormones that are present in the menstrual cycle. But some people may experience pain every day or they may be bloated every day. It's really dependent on the person. Um, but anyone that's experiencing debilitating period pain that prohibits them from getting on with their daily life, that's not normal. Common, yes, but not normal. So that's where you would warrant investigation. Okay.
0: And can lower back or, you know, SI, buttock pain or hip pain can that be associated with endo?
1: Definitely, yes. But I'd be looking at um the nature of the pain and the onset and so on. But yes, 100%
0: can be a sign. So if you're working with an endometriosis client, how do you determine if there's some central or peripheral sensitization present?
1: Um, Okay, so if it's someone that's, had chronic or has chronic pain going to just make the assumption that there will be both peripheral and central sensitization present to a degree that's um but that doesn't really matter because it's not going to change my treatment um so we would assume central sensitization will be sort of present if someone is experiencing um, like widespread symptoms, st- sensitivity to odor, sounds, light, poor memory or concentration, uh, the widespread pain, poor sleep, fatigue, abdominal and pelvic pain, and headaches, which basically sums up someone with endometriosis. <laughs> um, and both central and peripheral sensitization will cause mechanical sensitivity, so sore to touch, press, stretch, etc. But the peripheral sensitization will cause heat sensitivity. Um, so, Laura M- Mosley from the NOI group explains it far better than I ever will. Um, but <laughs> essentially, saying if you heat up the area and then, because people, you know, like long hot showers, et cetera, heat packs for pain, if you heat up the area um, and then there's no actual sensitivity after, the area's been heated, you're looking at central sensitization because peripheral sensitization is heat sensitive. Hmm. Um, So that's something to think about as well. Um, Even if there is no inflammatory process, but there is a peripheral nociceptive component and neurogenic inflammation. um, That's
0: what you want to think about is the heat component. Um, What
1: was the other part to that question?
0: (laughs) How do you Um, terminate central? yeah like how 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 would you determine if that's playing a role yeah so obviously looking at the overall symptom picture
1: the heat and um mechanic sensitivity but also then looking at um if people have fibromyalgia chronic neck and back pain ibs and then sort of the genetic tendencies for pain sensitivity um, as well as anxiety or history of depression and tra- um, psychological or physical trauma, um, is really a big area which is more likely to predispose someone to central sensitization or noisy plastic changes as well. So that goes also goes back to what we were saying about the epigenetics and genetic changes as well. Um, so there may be a genetic component to that sensitization pathway.
0: Hmm. So if you wanted to approach a patient from this, if you really wanted to address or try and affect this sensitization, how? what's your thought process? How do you go about it? Um, okay, so
1: I wouldn't be necessarily, like I said, distinguishing the two as my only way of treating, but I'd be looking yep. at the whole neuromatrix of pain. And understanding all the mechanisms that can coexist, so neuromechanisms, mechanisms, hormonal mechanisms, stress, genetics, etc., and then want to work on improving the brain's understanding of what's happening and where the body is in space and the various movement patterns that can um, occur as well. Um, a big focus on sensitization and chronic pain is obviously communication, effective and positive communication with the patient, and trying to prevent. Um, fear avoidance patterns as well so create a feeling of safety within themselves um, go about your normal treatment that you would addressing fascial dysfunction as well but then utilizing which I think is special as an osteopath is the power of therapeutic touch it's really important and although we're talking about all the sensitization what's happening in the brain and the neuroplastic changes yes that's what's happening but people are also coming to you for. Your ability to touch, downregulate, and it's a healing um, modality. So, yeah, that's something to consider.
0: Okay, is do you think having some pain, like if you're working with a client that's maybe quite early in the disease process or um, low-grade symptoms, do you think pain education plays an important role early on to try and prevent sort of maladaptive? Changes. Absolutely. Yes. And I
1: think that's where a lot of practitioners can miss it sometimes as well. Because you're like, oh, you know, use an ankle injury, for example, because we all have dealt with that before. Give it four to six weeks, you'll be right. But then it doesn't become right. (laughs) So I think, yes, definitely addressing those early maladaptive changes, using a positive language, looking at the person as an individual. So, what is their Fatigue, stress, what's happening in their everyday life? Is this just like another thing that's just adding and adding and adding? What's their overall health like, nutrition status and so on? And that's going to... oh, And prior pain experience as well, like what have people experienced in the past is going to have a big, big um, influence on any maladaptive changes as well as the power of mindset as well. So anxiety, depression, etc., can create um, big sen- sensory changes. Help.
0: Yep, help prevention. Mm. Um, can Can you talk about the role of medication and surgery in management as well? Um, yeah, sure. So obviously I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> <Or> a <doctor. laughs> Don't sell yourself short.
1: <laughs> um, so... Surgery has always been or has been the gold standard for both diagnosis and treatment, so excision surgery. Um, However, it's very invasive and not feasible for everybody. It's not cheap. It's, you know, downtime if you have to work and so on. Um, But the statistics, and I don't quote me on this, but I actually um, was doing a webinar with Dr. Jason Chow, who's a, gynecologist, an advanced surgeon in Sydney. Um, and the efficacy for surgery decreases after, after you've had three surgeries. So people go into surgery thinking it'll eliminate their pain. And it doesn't. It does for some people, but not everyone. So it, um, by taking the endometrial lesions out, it can, um stop some of the inflammatory cascade but it will return within a year for most people Um, so again that's not addressing the cause and in terms of medications there's so many different various medications out there some people quite often traditionally it's been to shut down the hormone system because it's responsive to estrogen and not responsive to progesterone people get put on the pill or um given marinas or zolidex or anything to shut down their hormones to try and flatline their hormones and prevent the pain from occurring. Um, in really severe cases, I've treated some patients that are in their mid-20s that have had hysterectomies. Wow. Yeah, huge, but it doesn't fix their pain. So there's something there that's saying that's not helping. Um,
0: I haven't really answered your question in that. <laughs> no, no, no. No, well- you have. No, no, no. I think um- also...
1: It's important for some that are prescribed pain meds, it's important to break that pain cycle as well. Um, and people are going to doctors looking for painkillers because they are in excruciating pain, and there's nothing wrong with breaking the pain cycle. That's
0: important. I think sometimes pain medications can be really shunned. So, in one of your articles, you mentioned pain down regulating training. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so when I talk about
1: down regulating, we're talking about um the central and sympathetic nervous system. Um, so bringing down that whole nervous system experience. So from the upregulation, obviously, to the down. Um, so as we know, pain experience can vary greatly in people, regardless of even if the injury injury is relatively similar. Um So that's where the peripheral and the central sensitivity comes into play as well as the variance that people can have in pain processing. Um, So what we need to look at is what is heightening that pain experience or promoting more of that um, pain experiencing. Is it being inhibited or facilitated at a spinal cord level? So that's where we would again look at someone's emotions, emotional state, anxiety, attention, Um, other factors that are happening within life and pain experience as well. So that all comes into play. And then we're looking at, in terms of pain processing, either a bottom-up or top-down approach on the pain experience. And with the pain down-regulating, you're going to be looking at the top-down approach to the descending pathways of pain and how we can dampen them and dampen that that noise, essentially, that we can hear. Um, so, again, that would involve education um, on all the factors that can influence pain and what may be influencing their pain at that time. Um, I will just side note, it's really important to use effective language and really effective communication because you don't want to be telling someone the pain's in their head, if you know what I mean. Like it's, Yeah. Yeah. Because um, it's real. It's a very real pain, but we're just addressing the things that can heighten the pain. Um, now I lost where I was. It's- <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so what was I saying? So, um, um, communication. Eventually. Yes. Effective communication. Um, yes. Yeah. Effective communication, positive language, therapeutic touch, as I spoke about before, the actual power of therapeutic touch, um, to downregulate that sympathetic nervous system, which can then in terms of osteopathy, like come back to your basic anatomy and physiology that we all learnt, I don't know, in second and third year. So looking at the sympathetic ganglia, um, various pathways of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nerve supply. Um, You're going into sort of articulation of the thoracic spines, the rib heads, um, addressing the diaphragm and breathing, making sure they're using appropriate breathing patterns, um, which is really, really important. And then, as I said, education, education on what is happening, why it's happening and what you they can do and what you can do as their osteo to help um, calm the nervous system, calm any fascial tensions that are occurring, but also prevent any catastrophizing as well. Um, And give them tools that they can implement in the moment as well. Um, Something that I use a lot for people is vagal nerve stimulation and getting them to do that on a daily basis. So things like gargling water, singing, laughing, and so on, hmm. can
0: have a really positive impact as well. Okay, that's Ooh. interesting. Hmm. Haven't heard of that yeah. before. Can you talk about the role of pelvic floor dysfunction?
1: Yeah, so again, a big area. Um question <laughs> has been derived from it. Um, <laughs> so... Essentially, pelvic floor. Most people with endometriosis will have some form of pelvic floor hypertonia, um, so spasm, which can in itself create more facilitation and more pain. Um, where this can be an issue is some of the symptoms of hypertonic pelvic floor um, are the same as a weak pelvic floor. So, bladder leakage, pain, heaviness, etc., can be the same as Weakness. So we've all been told strengthen Kegels, etc. But for a lot of people, particularly those with endometriosis, that's not what they need. They need to learn how to lengthen and relax their pelvic floor to decrease that spasm and any other pain facilitation. Um, so pelvic floor needs to be able to lengthen and relax and shorten and contract when needed to obviously support the pelvic organs. Um, so when addressing pelvic floor, we can't look at the pelvic floor without looking at abdominal diaphragm um, and breathing mechanics. So your breathing mechanics are super important for your pelvic health and function. But one is the role of breathing um, and that has on um, tissue oxygenation. So you mentioned, obviously, you've spoken to Roselba. So I'm sure she spoke yep. far better than I can <laughs> about the importance <laughs> of breathing appropriately. <laughs> um, And like blood pH and so on. But also um, if you're not breathing properly, if you're using the muscles of the accessory muscles of respiration, you're more likely to be in an anxious state as well. And that can further facilitate pain and heighten pain, um, which will then upregulate your nervous system as well. So that's sort of one side of things with pelvic floor and diaphragm. But then also breathing is impacted by your emotions, your posture, your strength, pain and learned habits, which is really important um, to try and get people to oh, just got really dark in here. Um try and get people <laughs> to breathe appropriately. And it's crazy the amount of people that don't know how to breathe. Cause it's just yeah, it's
0: thing it
1: blows my mind.
0: Yeah. I know it's um, I, I can't breathe properly either. Um, and after talking to Rosalba, it really highlighted um, my breathing dysfunction.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess where I'm going with that is like essentially the canister. So abdominal diaphragm on top, pelvic floor on the bottom, and then the abdominal muscles and connective tissue um, anteriorly and then lumbers and connective tissue posteriorly. So when you inhale, obviously diaphragm needs to descend, ribs expand, that pressure then pushes the abdominal and pelvic organs contents inferiorly, which means your pelvic floor has to be able to relax and lengthen. And if it can't, because it's spasm, there's nowhere for that pressure to go. So then when you exhale, obviously there's that recoil and that pressure gradient has to change between the pelvic floor. So if you're getting no lengthening and relaxation of pelvic floor, you're just getting essentially pressure from the abdomen, from the abdominal diaphragm coming down, but nothing to really, um, what's the word I'm looking for counteract or have that flow, um, which will increase pain as well. So that's super important. Um, and another thing, particularly women is, and for those with endo women in general, stop trying to suck your stomach in. Um, Oh, (laughs) come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's going to place extra pain, extra pressure on your
0: pelvic floor. Yeah. Um, so that's something to think about. So look, yeah. there is a lot we can do osteopathically. You know, coming from a, a musculoskeletal um, approach, Understood. there is a lot that we can do. And in your articles, you you do go through a few lovely exercises that addresses breathing and pelvic floor. Mm. And so, anyone who hasn't read them absolutely has to. Can I just sneak in one really quick question? Hopefully, it's not too broad. Uh-huh. Um is just briefly anything we can do for a patient post-surgically um, just to maximize the benefits of their surgery?
1: Yeah. Um, when we say maximize the benefits of the surgery, it can't say that the endometriosis will never grow back. Like can't get mm. that. But um, working on lymphatic drainage. And once the scars have healed, like the laparoscopy scars, even though they're tiny, they're deep, um, making sure that there's good mobility through the scars and preventing adhesion formation um, internally where they've had the endometriosis, endometriosis excised. So I guess, yeah, the main main goal is to prevent adhesions forming and further lesion formation as well as um, encourage good organ mobility and bowel function, because I'm sure if anyone's ever had surgery, they know it's not too fun going to the toilet (laughs) after. So
0: that's the main thing. Okay. Fantastic. And are you working on any professional development resources or courses at the moment for people that want to learn more?
1: I am. Um, So my good friend, Sarah Drybra, who is an osteo in Brisbane, and I are working on a endometriosis Um, and pelvic pain course, which will be run next year in Melbourne, Sydney, and the Gold Coast through Bowerbird CBD. So if anyone's looking for something, head to
0: Bowerbird. Um, That would be fantastic. Um, Well, thank you so much for giving so much time today. I know you're very busy and I've hammered you with a few quite broad questions. So um, I really appreciate you navigating my (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh my gosh
1: i'm sorry i can't give a straight answer because it's so no they're not
0: there's not straightforward (laughs) answers though and we could talk for hours like it's it only just scratches the surface but hopefully it sparks more interest in people um and opens our mind a little bit more so thank Thank you so much for all your time rebecca
1: my pleasure thank you for having me The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.